Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani. The topic of today's episode is protests and social movements in the Low Countries, rebellion, unrest, anti-authoritarianism, and the power of collective intent are as much woven into the fabric of the Low Countries' histories and cultures as dikes, dams, churches, and cheese. The region has long been defined by its mishmash of different social, political, economic, and religious groups all with their own divergent and all too often competing interests. Due to the precariousness of their geographic location, by which I mean all living in the same soggy swamp, which was periodically inundated by giant floods, the people living in the low countries have become masters at poldering. That concept we explained in the episode of the Low Countries Radio about water management which basically means finding a resolution to a seemingly intractable issue by sitting around in a circle, consuming copious amounts of coffee, and continually cutting through a complex conundrum until a conciliating compromise can be found through consensus. But life in this region hasn't always been so peaceful, and all too often, important voices have been left out of those discussions, meaning that political power in the polders has been periodically projected through the potency of protest. One of the earliest documents which defined the relationship between the ruler and the ruled in this region, known as the Charter of Kortenberg from 1312, gave the people in Brabant, quote, the right to resist should the duke or his descendants refuse to observe it, end quote. It being the Charter. From literally their very foundations, both the nation-states of the Netherlands and Belgium were forged in a revolt against authority, with the Dutch rebelling against their Habsburg Spanish monarch Philip II through the late 16th and into the early 17th centuries, and the Belgians rebelling against the Dutch in 1830. Just as much as Dutch and Flemish cultures today are defined by their ability to seek consensus through compromise, so too have they long been defined by a willingness to angrily and often violently take to the streets in order to be heard. So in this episode, we will take a look at some of the major and minor protest movements that have occurred across the Low Countries, which have helped shape them into the places they are today. As usual, to help guide us through this episode, metaphorically making placards, hoisting banners and leading the chants, let me invite Julian Smith to the microphone. What do we want? Julian Smith, when do we want him? Now. Hello, Joe. Hello, comrades. One of the more peculiar riots in Low Country history took place in Amsterdam on the 25th and 26th of July, 1886 in what is fantastically known as the Eel Riots. 
Over the course of those two days, the working-class Jordan neighbourhood erupted into heavy fighting with police, which left 26 people dead and over 50 others injured. The Jordan was a peculiar place. It had been created in the 17th century, when Amsterdam saw massive urban development projects being undertaken. People came to Amsterdam from all over to work on these projects, and many of them lived on the western outskirts of the city in what became known as the Jordan. From its creation until the late 20th century, it was a working-class and relatively impoverished neighbourhood, defined by crammed houses, unemployment and poverty, but also by a distinct identity that was often expressed through things like music, games and festivals. One of the most famous works based in the Jordan is the 1923 book Case de Jonge, Case the Boy. It was written by the Jordan-born and raised educator Theo Tyson, and is set during the period in which the eel riots took place. Without meaning to give the story away, it is about a young boy who sees himself as special and who feels the potential of what his life could be. His dreams, however, are stricken down by the grave illness of his already poor father and subsequent need for him to leave school and go into the workforce. This kind of story would have been typical for people in the Jordan at the end of the 19th century. Despite the strong community and independent vibes of the place, the cycle of poverty encompassed most of its inhabitants. But this was also a time of revolutionary thoughts and notions sweeping across Europe in the forms of Marxist and socialist ideals, whispered, spoken and shouted by workers in the Jordan as much as anywhere else. We are not going to go into the complex nature of socialism and the different ways that different people identified with it in the Netherlands during this era, as it's not the focus of this episode. Suffice it to say that since the 1840s, there had been periodic protests and clashes between Amsterdam's poorer classes, which included most Jordanese people, and the authorities. By the 1880s, one of the leaders of Dutch socialism was Ferdinand Dommeler Nieuwenhuis. He had founded the Socialist Democratic Bond, the first socialist party of the Netherlands, and was responsible for the socialist newspaper Recht voor Allen, Rights for All, which spoke clearly of needing to oppose the ruling class. The police were seen by many as servants of the ruling class, and Domela Nieuwenhuis had many, many supporters in the Jordan. When it came to police, Amsterdam in general was not seen as the most loving society. One contemporary, Diederik van Amstel, wrote shortly after the eel riots, quote, It cannot be denied that a distrustful, unfriendly spirit against the police had existed among the bourgeoisie long before social democracy was seriously spoken of in Amsterdam. That spirit is traditional. It is further beyond all doubt that the Jordan, in particular, has always regarded itself as above the police. It is, as we read in the Handelsblad, an old tradition in the Jordan that it rules itself and needs no police. End quote. One of the ways the Jordanese could show their disregard for authorities was to organise community events without bothering to obtain the necessary permission. On Sunday the 18th of July, 1886, someone organised sack races in such a manner, blatantly provoking a response from the police. The police station on the Nordermarkt, which is a square on the edge of the neighbourhood, effectively turned a blind eye to these sack races. In the aftermath, this would be pointed to as something that gave the Jordanese an inch of rope from which they would take a mile. And speaking of ropes, one week after the sack races, on Sunday the 25th of July, an informant approached the police station's chief to say that a bunch of Jordanese were organising to string a rope up over the Lindenhucht, one of the neighbourhood's main canals. 
after the success of the sack races, they were going to revive the long banned game of parling trekken, eel pulling. Eel pulling involved a rope being hung over a canal, and these were filthy, stinking, rotten, just fetidly putrid canals. In the middle of the rope, a live eel was attached. The idea was that participants in boats would float underneath the suspended eel, which was covered in fat or grease, as well as being as slippery as an eel, and they would grab at it and, while still moving, try to pull its head off. If they succeeded, they won a headless eel. If, however, they could not gain a good grasp, they would be prone to falling hilariously and calamitously into the stinking, putrid, fetid, disgusting canals. Everybody lining the banks would laugh uproariously and they would be pulled out to slink off having lost the game, but maybe having won cholera. Eel pulling had been banned as far back as 1850, when it was labelled as a quell spell, a game that is cruel to animals. Until this occasion that we are focusing on, the last recorded attempt to play the game in the Jordan had happened nearly 15 years prior and had been quickly stopped by police. It's worth keeping in mind as we picture this convivial but cruel, curious community canal caper that the, according to one source, thousands of people who were either taking part in boats or watching on were not invested in something that was a regular or even annual occurrence in their lives. Still, it was spoken about afterwards as a passionately loved endeavour of the community. So when the police chief, whose name was Delamans, received word that Eel was to be pulled, he and two of his men hit the streets of the Jordan to check it out. As mentioned, this was a hard-suffering neighbourhood in hard-suffering times, with a natural antipathy for the police. The officers found what appeared to be the preparations for the event, which Delamans later called outdated folk entertainment. He sought out the organisers and got assurances from them that the preparations would stop and, to show their good intentions, they had many of the waiting boats removed from the scene. Remarkably, the police had managed to get a win in the Jordan. In the meantime, however, the crowd had continued to gather, with many people arriving to see what the fuss was about. Having reached an agreement with the organisers, the police returned to the station. Later in the afternoon, Delamon sent a few police officers to cast an eye over the Lindenhucht again, to ensure that the good faith of the agreement was being adhered to. They returned shortly after to report that, actually, the Jordanais were once again busy setting up to pull some eel, and that the crowd was growing. Quickly, they were sent off again to put a stop to the game completely. Other police from the nearby station on Brauersgracht joined them. They found a scene where, in the words of Diederik van Amstel again, quote, The Lindenhucht is black with people. In suspense, thousands wait to see who will tear the eel off the rope, which has already been pulled three times. They must have already seen a few people fall into the water, and were focused on a repetition of that pleasure. A rough pleasure, but one needs a good deal of civilization before it ceases to be a pleasure, and the Jordanais are not of a well-groomed education. End quote. I don't think Diedrich van Amstel thought very highly of the Jordanese people. One of the officers from the Brauersgracht police station, a guy called van Dornevard, went to the house where one of the ends of the rope was attached. The resident, when asked if he could either cut the rope or let van Dornevard in to do it, gave a flat-out no to both requests. 
The policeman went to the other side of the canal and the house to which the other end of the rope was attached and found an uninhabited building. He and three other police officers went upstairs and unleashed the rope, sending it falling to the ground. On the way to the ground, however, the rope hit a five-year-old girl on the head and in the words of one newspaper report, she started, quote, screeching miserably, end quote. The assembled crowd began to jeer, and when the police officers came out of the empty building, they were quickly set upon. They desperately reached for their sabres, finding themselves now in fear of their lives. Afterwards, the police said that a specific group of about 30 men, all socialists, had led the attack and that they could identify some of them. They knew them from their activities handing out the socialist newspaper, Recht for Allen. What is more, the police claimed that the men who had led the attack had just come from a speech given by Domela Neuenhaus himself. Suddenly, it was on. The crowd went into a frenzy. People were screaming and running, pulling stones out of the street and pelting them towards the police. In the hubbub, Van Dornevard, the police officer who had taken the rope off the building, was pushed into a cellar where he continued to be beaten and attacked. Fortunately, one lady living in the building gave him cover and protected him in her apartment. The police presence surged and they set about trying to restore order as the crowd began to push towards the police station on the Nordermarkt. In those initial stages, two officers tried to arrest a local fishmonger named Hendrik Fayi for throwing stones at cops, although he ran away. On this occasion, it did not help to be the well-known local fish guy and he would be arrested afterwards since they simply knew where he lived. Other officers arrested a woman named Marie Bosman Potters for allegedly throwing a flower pot off her balcony at the police. To me, it makes total sense that someone called Potters would select a pot as their weapon of choice, but she denied it, saying that she had accidentally kicked it off in all of the excitement. Another local woman, Petronella Schoutens, was arrested alongside her 17-year-old daughter for hauling street stones around in baskets, taking them to others who were doing battle against the ever-increasing police line. Amsterdam already had battle plans for Jordaan riots, given the extensive history of them, and in accordance with these plans, the local military garrison was put on standby for intervention. Around 9pm, it started to rain, big surprise for the Netherlands, and with the streets and bridges around the Lindenhucht and Nordermarkt ripped to shreds, looking like a war zone, police were better able to hold the lessening numbers of demonstrators back. The mayor, Heisberg van Tienhoven, received word that the military reinforcements would not be necessary. However, he also received word that the Jordanese had done something which they had never done before and turned off the gas lamps. The long, languid summer dusk of the northern Netherlands brought only a meagre darkness upon these battle-worn streets, but the rain clouds played their part to bring a deeper gloom upon the scene. By turning off the lights, the Jordanese were enveloping themselves in as much of the darkness as they could. The police on the Nordermarkt looked on as the rioters' shadows became ever longer until their huddled mass dissolved into the darkening rain. Mayor Fantinoven was in for a troubled night, but he executed a plan to bring as much normalcy back to the Jordan as possible. Teams of workers were sent out to relight the lamps and repair the shredded streets. In the translated words of Fred Foppen, whose work on this for the Radboud University we have relied on heavily, quote, the next morning the Jordan looked just like it normally did, end quote. So on that next morning, there were no excessive problems on the streets, 
although the police did note that a lot of men armed with sticks were walking around. A crowd of demonstrators gathered on the Linden Dvarstraat, and police began to circulate reports that there were socialist agents and followers of Ferdinand Domela Neuenhaus moving around, stirring the pot. Red flags had been seen waving in the streets, and the fears of a communist uprising, similar to what had happened already in Paris in 1871, was looking imminent. To add to these trepidations, the crowd sang La Marseillaise. The police were sure that Domela Neuenhaus had plans afoot, that he would take hold of this uprising that had begun over an eel's neck, do eels have necks, and lead it to revolution. In their fear, they set an agent to tail him, ready to arrest him if need be. The officer followed him all the way to the train station, where he caught a train to Harlem to give a lecture. Seemingly, Ferdinand Domela Neuenhaus had not planned any of this, nor was he going to take advantage of it in the way the authorities expected. Around midday in the Jordan, the crowd began to move from Linden Dvarstraat towards the Nordermarkt, threatening the market and the police station there. The police resisted this initially through sheer force of numbers, but the crowd grew. Children were collecting stones on the Westerstraat to reinforce the onslaught. Around 3pm, Amsterdam's mayor received the report that the police at Nordermarkt needed reinforcements. The crowd had reached its destination, and barricades were quickly built up by the rioters around the square, red flags planted on top of them. Finally, the mayor made the call and reached out to the commander of the local military garrison. 200 infantry and cavalry arrived at the Nordermarkt around 6pm and set about trying to dispel and dismantle the barricades. When they told the crowd to disperse, they received a resounding no in response. We know the details of what happened here from an eyewitness report which was published in the Rotterdam Courant. It tells us that, quote, The commander stood in front of his men. He ordered the crowd to disperse first, and this demand was answered cursingly. Shoot if you dare! Then he sprang to one side and commanded, Fire! One shot. And it was as if a commanding supreme voice had cried, Silence! All stood so breathless for one indivisible moment after this shot. A heart-rending shriek from him or her who had been stricken rose above the head of the crowd, immediately followed by the furious roar rising from thousands of throats. It was as if a shudder passed through the whole crowded mass, and as if she would insist with irresistible violence. Fire! It sounded again in a thunderous voice. Another shot, another scream, another increasingly ferocious roar. Shoot! screamed the women, who stood like furies with loose hair beside their men and hurled the stones at the soldiers. Shoot! screamed the women, tearing the jackets from their bodies and hammering their nails into their bare breasts. Hurry up, murderers! Fire! it sounded. And yet the people did not shrink back. No, stones kept falling and the roar became more ferocious. End quote. Whew. In the fighting that ensued, 22 people lost their lives while over 50 more were badly injured, with four of those eventually succumbing to their wounds. Stories of the victims emerged straight away, as well as long after the events. Theo Tyson was a young lad at the time of the eel riots. Decades later, he remembered, quote, The neighbour, a butcher, came to ask my father if he would come along to watch the events. But father didn't want to come along, fortunately, because half an hour later, the butcher was dead. End quote. All of the dead were civilians, even though some of the police were very badly injured. 
Only one woman, Anna Christina Janssen, was killed when she was struck in the head by a bullet whilst running a message across a bridge. As the infantrymen pushed into the narrow streets of the Jordan, its inhabitants continued to pelt them, often from the balconies above, stopping their progress and pushing them back to the Nordermarkt. More soldiers were sent for, and the decision was made by the authorities to seal off the entire neighbourhood, with the aim of preventing what was thought to be a socialist uprising from seeping into the rest of Amsterdam. The fighting continued until around 11pm. The infantry continued trying to push in to dispel the demonstrators on the Westerstraat, who once again had turned off the streetlights and were once more making their way to the Nordermarkt. A cavalry unit was sent in, but they too had so much stuff flung at them from above that they too needed to retreat. Eventually though, the mob exhausted itself and succumbed to the carnage. There were so many injured, dead and dying being brought to the Binnengasthaus in a city hospital that many had to be transferred to the Bautengasthaus hospital on the outskirts of the city. As Monday swung into Tuesday, 500 soldiers occupied the Jordan, prepared for another day of tumult to rear its head in a few hours' time. Once again, teams were sent to work following the mayor's order, quote, to clear up all traces of disturbances in the neighbourhoods concerned, to repair the pavement and to restore the environment to its normal appearance, end quote. But the next day, there was no fighting, and the eel riots came to a close. The event, which started with a neighbourhood game of pulling an eel's head off, ended with 26 people dead and over 50 more injured. 22 people were arrested for throwing or enabling the throwing of stones at police. Different parties of them took different avenues through the court system. Some gained a reprieve, while others languished in jail, meaning that the fate of the participants in these riots remained in the public eye for some time. Socialists were blamed initially for provoking this riot. The Handelsblatt newspaper insisted it had been socialist provocateurs at work, corrupting a community who were otherwise good people. Quote, If the people had not been artificially and maliciously incited against the police for months, if the people had not been acquainted with resistance to the police, the shameful attacks on police officers who did their duty would not have happened. End quote. Other viewpoints quickly emerged too, like that the problem lay in deep-rooted rot in the police establishment. Diedrich van Amstel wrote of it, quote, The hatred of the police in the Jordan was so fierce, manifested itself so instantaneously and generally, that social democracy explains very little here. Is it supposed that any nation will bear it if the police are ever ready with the sabre, and, at intervals, once loosed, hack at the citizens like a blind man? What policy do the chiefs of police have at socialist riots and socialist meetings? The same policy as in the Jordan on Sunday the 25th of July, a total absence of policy, end quote. It has since become recognised that the main cause of the rioters' anguish were the prevailing living conditions in the Jordan, which were crowded, impoverished, and provided few, if any, positive avenues for people to improve their lives. There was a sense of belonging to the Jordan rather than to wealthy Amsterdam. When something that the people considered to be their own, the game of eel-pulling, was stopped by the police, the people lashed out against this perceived attack on their identity, which was one of the few things they had. Certainly the growth of socialism and the fact that people were reading and listening to ideas about opposing the ruling class must have contributed to some people's convictions as they bound themselves to the angry mob pitting itself against the police. But, as we heard from Theo Tyson earlier, some of those most affected, like the butcher friend of his father, were simply going to witness the spectacle and ended up dead. 
This uprising was just the latest in a slew of demonstrations, protests, and rioting that had been happening for decades. Eventually, the tide turned for workers' rights, starting not long after the Eel Riot. In 1889, the Workers' Law was passed, which forbade child labour under 12 and set rules for those younger than 16. The Compulsory Education Law followed in 1900 that made education for children under 12 compulsory. And then in 1901, a housing law was passed, which was the first law on public housing in the Netherlands, which sought to make the building and occupation of poor-grade housing impossible while stimulating and encouraging the construction of high-quality public housing. Although these were not the first laws aimed at improving living conditions for the poor, they were stricter than any previous, and at their core was the need for such laws to safeguard the future from the kind of anguish that erupted in the Jordan over an interrupted game of eel-pulling. In 1968, the sleepy and historic university town of Lofen, situated about 30 kilometers east of Brussels, became the scene of one of the most significant protests to have ever taken place in the Low Countries. The hostilities in Lofen sparked a political crisis, which would end up bringing about the downfall of the Belgian government and would see long-established political parties, as well as the Catholic University of Lofen, be literally carved into two separate entities. So what could possibly have been the root cause for such a dramatic division within Lofen? Well, it was an issue which still provokes passions within Belgium today. It was, of course, the question of language. It is well beyond the scope and intent of this segment of the podcast to give a thorough history of the linguistic and cultural divides across Belgium. So when we radically oversimplify something here, please bear in mind that we are doing so for the sake of brevity. When the southern provinces of the Kingdom of the Netherlands broke away from Dutch rule with revolutionary fervor in 1830, one of the many motivations behind their secession was language. French was the language spoken by the elite upper classes in the southern provinces, and they had resisted the imposition of Dutch as the official language in the Flemish provinces by Dutch King William I. In the new post-revolution Kingdom of Belgium, Dutch was seen as the language of the oppressive northerners, and French became the sole language of the government and judiciary. In 1832, one of the revolutionary leaders, Charles Rogier, who would later become Prime Minister of Belgium, supposedly wrote in a letter to a colleague, quote, The efficiency of an administration is based on the fact that it uses only one language, and it is clear that that language in Belgium can only be French. To make this possible, we have to make sure that all civil and military officers are reserved for Walloons, the Flemings, who because of this will have to miss the benefits of such positions, will feel obliged to learn French, and in such a way, we will gradually be able to destroy the Germanic part of Belgium. End quote. When you consider that around half the population of the new country of Belgium were actually Dutch speakers, it is pretty difficult not to see this as anything other than a direct attack on a specific culture of the country. But despite the attempted Frenchification of the state, 
Over the following decades, a reactionary movement sprang up across Flanders, defending and promoting the use of their own native language. In 1873, Dutch was allowed to be used in courts if a defendant could not speak French. From 1878, Dutch had to be used in official pronouncements in Flanders, and in 1883, a law was introduced meaning that Dutch began to be used in secondary education instead of only French. Finally, in 1898, the Law of Equality was passed, which saw both Dutch and French recognized as official languages in Belgium. After a lot of complications during the First and Second World Wars, remember we are going for brevity, so yes, we've just skipped those two events. In 1962, Belgium was officially split into different language areas. Belgium wasn't really a bilingual country. People didn't go around speaking French and Dutch interchangeably, and this new law recognized that. According to the law, each municipality would belong to one of four language areas, a Dutch one, a French one, a bilingual Dutch slash French one, or a German one. In essence, a big line was drawn roughly across the middle of the country, with everything north of it speaking Dutch, everything south of it speaking French, with the exception being a few municipalities which border Germany and which speak German, and the capital city Brussels, which is officially bilingual, but in reality exists as an island of Francophones surrounded by a sea of Dutch speakers. The idea was pretty much that if you lived in a Dutch-speaking part, you spoke Dutch. If you lived in a French-speaking part, you spoke French. It is from here that the seeds of discontent began to be sown in that little sleepy university town of Lofen. Just outside of Brussels, Lofen today lies in Flemish Brabant, the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium. The town's most important institution is its university, whose roots can be traced all the way back to 1425, when Pope Martin V issued a papal bull that created the Studium Generale Lovaniense. This was the first university to ever be founded in the Low Countries, and until it was officially abolished by revolutionary France in 1797, the sole language used in the institution was Latin. In 1834, Pope Gregory XVI issued a papal brief founding the Catholic University of Belgium in Mechelen, but the next year it moved to Lofen, rebranded itself the Catholic University of Lofen, and somewhat dubiously claimed to be a re-founding of that esteemed medieval university. The language of this new university was, like every other official thing in the newly created Kingdom of Belgium, French. It wasn't until almost a hundred years after its founding, in 1930, the lectures began to be offered in Dutch, despite the fact that, like we just mentioned, the town of Lofen itself lies in the Dutch-speaking part of the country. In response to the 1962 language laws, the bishops who controlled the university installed a new rector named Albert de Camp, who was assisted by two pro-rectors, one French-speaking and one Dutch. Each faculty was split into a French-speaking part and a Dutch-speaking part, each with their own dean. The university at this time was already facing a host of issues, such as a lack of space due to the growing student population. 
many Flemish nationalists and activists demanded that the French-speaking part of the university be relocated out of Lofen, over the language border, and into Wallonia, the French-speaking part of the country. Various proposals were put forward about how to expand the university, and preparations were made for a potential relocation, but nothing actually changed, leaving tensions within Lofen to simmer away, within a 1960s style of radicalizing a student population. The predicament faced by the Catholic University of Lofen grew into a greater regional issue on the 3rd of November 1965, when an interview with the head of the French-speaking part of the university, Michel Vautrin, was published in a French-language student magazine called Le Go. In this interview, Vautrin said that the university would expand into three new locations surrounding Brussels, which in 20 years' time would be part of the greater Brussels of the future. This was, in effect, throwing gasoline on the fire of Flemish fears for the future of Brabant. Remember that Brussels is a bilingual, but mostly French, island surrounded by Dutch-speaking Flanders. The implication was that the expansion of the university in this region would lead to the Frenchification of even more of Flemish Brabant, which only further stoked Flemish activism, both within the student population, but also in the region more broadly. In the months that followed, Flemish students marched through Lofen, holding signs with slogans saying things like, Valen Baten, Walloons out! On May 13th, 1966, seven Belgian bishops, led by Cardinal Leon-Joseph Suenen, came together in Mechelen to determine the future of the university. After this meeting, they published a so-called mandate in which they decreed that the university must remain bilingual into the future and that there must be only one Catholic university in Lofen. The mandate ordered that their decision must be accepted, quote, in submission to the responsible superiors, end quote, then declaring that, quote, this decision is irrevocable and cannot be questioned, end quote, but then bringing the point home by saying, quote, may the Holy Ghost give light and strength so that the University of Lofen in the future as in the past will fulfill its important and indispensable mission, end quote. As you can probably guess, this mandate given by people calling themselves the responsible superiors, did not go down well with Flemish students, staff, activists, or nationalists. Almost immediately after news broke of this mandate, there was an outpouring of anger, which was described by journalist Guido van Hoof as, quote, a wave of indignation that swept over the dikes of the deference with which bishops are traditionally treated, end quote. Students went on strike, hanging out black flags from their dormitories and marching with signs saying, Suenen's out, and Mother, why are we Catholic? And there were violent clashes between demonstrators and the gendarmerie. As well as being anti-clerical, the protests in Lofen took on a whole new anti-establishment and anti-authoritarian character, as students began to demand for the democratization of the university and to make it more accessible for people from lower socioeconomic groups. As Jed Reiner Horn wrote in his article, The Belgian Contribution to Global 1968, 
the protests had switched from, quote, focusing on Lofen, Flams, and Valen, Baton, Lofen, Flemish, and Walloon out to an agitation slowly switching to a mobilization demanding bourgeoisie out, a slogan with the advantage of a double meaning, depending on a predilection or circumstance of anti-Francophone and anti-elite sentiments, end quote. It was a movement which united all sides of the political spectrum who could look at the problem through their own particular lens and all agree that the university needed to be split. The demonstrators began to identify themselves with the other contemporaneous social movements overseas, such as the civil rights movement by black Americans in the USA. A student march was organized from Ostend to Lofen, a distance of just under 150 kilometers from October the 4th to the 9th, 1966. They dubbed it the Meredith March, in reference to the civil rights march along the Mississippi, which had taken place earlier that year. At a ceremony to mark the opening of the academic year at Lofen in October 1966, students turned their back on a procession of academics and sung We Shall Overcome, the civil rights movement's unofficial anthem. It is, of course, impossible not to see the irony in this when one considers that this was a case of a language majority trying to literally kick a language minority out of an institution. The complications are probably best summed up by journalist J.H. Altschul in a 1981 article about this incident in which he wrote, quote, The French responded angrily and called the Flemings cultural racists. For their part, the Flemings attacked the Walloons as cultural imperialists. And both groups were, of course, correct. End quote. Over the next year, there were various discussions, meetings, and proposals put forward about what the future of the Catholic University of Lofen would look like. The crisis came to its climax in January 1968, when news broke that the French-speaking part of the university had made plans to invest and expand into Lofen itself, just like the bishops had announced. At this point, a full-scale student revolt broke out, not only in Lofen, but also across Flanders, which would continue for around a month. As one student leader, Paul Gossens, recalls, quote, Even the most bourgeois-seeming individuals continuously shouted with clenched fists, Revolution! And people who, two weeks earlier, still personified moderation and tranquility, turned out to have become frightful agitators. The entire Lofen student body seemed to have been infected by a rebellious virus and had become propagators of the most radical points of view. End quote. There were protests, riots, and violent clashes with police. Exams at the university were cancelled. The protests even began to spread into the secondary school system, where tens of thousands of students assembled across the region demanding for reform of their own institutions. The bishops, whose mandate for a bilingual university had sparked this outrage in the first place, became split. The Bishop of Bruges, Emile Joseph de Schmet, said during a meeting on February 2nd, 1968, quote, I am convinced that I made a big mistake on May 13th, 1966, when he agreed to the mandate, and as the son of Flemish Brabant, I remain loyal to my Flemish people and I will fight for its cultural homogeneity. End quote. 
The crisis at Lofen also reached the highest levels of government. The CVP, a so-called unitary Catholic political party, unitary meaning it represented Belgium as opposed to Flanders or Wallonia, and which was also part of the ruling coalition, was divided on the issue of rehousing the French part of the university. On February 6, the leader of the Flemish faction of the party, Jan Verhoeven, demanded that the Prime Minister Van den Boyens commit to rehousing the French part into Wallonia. When the Prime Minister refused to do this, the eight Flemish members of the CVP quit, and the next day, the ruling coalition fell apart. The Lofen question thus brought down the reign of Prime Minister Van den Boyens. Following elections in March 1968, one of the policies of the new government led by Gaston Eiskens was to split the university into two and put the French-speaking part in Wallonia. So, in July 1968, the board of directors of the university met in Brussels and agreed to the split, which officially occurred in 1970, with the creation of the Dutch-speaking Catholique Universiteit Leuven and the French-speaking Université Catholique de Leuven. The divorce was so acrimonious that some of the consequences almost seem ridiculous. An entire new town was built in Wallonia to house the French university, and they called it Lufan le Neuf, New Lofen, which sits about 30 kilometers away from original Lofen. The university's library was literally split in two, with odd-numbered books staying in Lofen, while the even-numbered books went to Lufan le Neuf. In the end, however, decades later, the division of the university has perhaps benefited both the Wallonian community and the Flemish communities, as both institutions are today thriving centres for their respective regions. Also, somewhat paradoxically, the two institutions now actually cooperate in many ways together, such as writing joint papers, which they do in English. Yes, they solved it. They solved it with English. English. Probably the biggest consequence of this entire affair was the further division of Belgium along the lines of its language groups. The CVP, the political party whose split had brought down the government, became two separate parties, one French-speaking, one Dutch-speaking. Over the next decade, the two other unitary parties, the Liberals and the Socialists, also split into French-speaking and Dutch-speaking parts. In 1970, the Eiskens government introduced the first state reform of Belgium, which created three cultural communities, Dutch, French, German. They were responsible for all cultural matters. This was the first of several steps, which eventually saw Belgium become what it is today, a fully-fledged federal state. The year 1968 is famous for the amount of protests that took place around the world, Anti-nuclear, student, civil rights, and anti-war protests erupted in Europe, the US, Brazil, Japan, Northern Ireland, Tunisia, and Pakistan, to name just a few. But it was in Lofen, in January of that year, that a Flemish student protest brought down a government. On the 30th of April 1980, the Dutch Queen Juliana formally abdicated and passed the throne on to her daughter Beatrix. 
This splendid scene of royal magnificence and grandeur took place in a city which was under siege, filled with 10,000 police officers and military officials, battling against a furious mass of people, declaring, Geen woning, geen kroning, no house, no crown. The coronation riots were one of the most violent outbursts in the Netherlands after the Second World War, in which thousands of squatters, students, and other demonstrators made the case that, although Beatrix was inheriting a few choice properties, far too many people in the Netherlands could not find anywhere to live due to a critical lack of housing, which is an age-old problem in one of the most densely populated places on the planet. To set some context, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, many families in Dutch cities were evicted because of not being able to pay their rent. A situation emerged where apartments stood empty while masses of people had nowhere to live. Two decades earlier, in 1914, a Dutch Supreme Court decision had made a ruling that a previously unused building could be established as a residency with only a bed, a table and a chair. Using this as a tactic, these evicted people began squatting empty buildings, finding that this obscure ruling was extremely effective as landlords could no longer remove them and had little choice but to negotiate decent terms for rental. Thus, squatting in the Netherlands was born. Although, as pointed out by Lynn Owens in her paper Cracking Under Pressure, narrating the decline of Amsterdam squatters' movements, quote, The tenants used squatting as a tactic. However, they did not think of themselves as squatters, let alone a squatters' movement, end quote. Fast forward through the Second World War and into the 1960s, like most places across the Western world, the Netherlands boasted a generation full of disenchanted youth, which partly expressed its anger and frustration through the formation of youth movements. In the Netherlands, the most famous one was called Provo, whose modus operandi was to incite reaction from authorities through public action of pranking and defiance. Without going into the wider complexities of this, it impacted squatting by bringing it out into the open as a form of public protest. Provo dissolved in 1967, but there was still one last prank to be played. A socialist democratic newspaper, Het Freie Volk, published the announcement in January 1968 that, quote, the Provo archive is for sale, end quote. It reported that an American university had made a five-digit offer in US dollars to buy it. About three weeks later, the head librarian for the University of Amsterdam signed a contract with Provo representatives to acquire the archive so that it did not leave the country. Oh, I should probably mention at this point that there was no such thing as a Provo archive, but that didn't matter because they just slapped something together and sold it to the university for 13,010 guilders. This caused quite a stir, with many being aggrieved at money being spent on the work of a bunch of trouble stirrers. One member of parliament demanded of the Minister of Culture, quote, How can this purchase be defended and what possible interest can it serve? End quote. On the activist side, there were also critics. One of the Provo's main protagonists, Rule van Dan, called the sale, quote, a nauseating middle class method, end quote, and that anything from the liquidation of Provo's stuff should have been donated. This might seem like a bit of a random digression, but it's related to our story because these funds from the sale ended up being used to set up something called the Voning Bureau de Kraker, or Squatters Housing Office. This allowed the organisation of people, equipped with their beds, tables and chairs, to mobilise and claim empty buildings that could be turned into homes for people that needed them. It also introduced the term which the Dutch use for squatting today, kraken. 
Until this period, the act was called clandestina bezetten, or clandestine occupation. But now, the people who did this were crackers, which is kind of related to the English word crack, like when you crack open a door which had previously been closed. Squatting was still largely met with brutality by building owners and police, but through the 70s it increased in scope, not only in Amsterdam, but also in other towns and cities. In 1971, squatters won a huge victory when the Supreme Court ruled that the term a house in use only defined buildings being used as houses. This meant that buildings which had been empty for over a year were now legally susceptible to being squatted, with a bed, a chair and a table to make it a residency. Modernization plans in Amsterdam spelled the destruction of many historic but also empty buildings throughout the 1970s, particularly around an area called the Neumarkt. People were evicted as the city bought up more and more buildings to destroy them so that they could build a metro. Squatters converged on the area and proceeded to claim these empty buildings, intent on protecting them from the development. Strangely, as many of the construction plans were not yet finalised, they were allowed to stay until 1974 when it all came to a head. They were eventually evicted after heavy fighting that included literally pitched battles in the street. But throughout the experience, a strong sense of community and lifestyle had developed within the Newmarket that showed its members that squatting was not only about housing, but could also be a way of life. For the next half decade, the movement continued to develop and grow, although the housing crisis did not abate. At the end of the day, the need for a house was the primary reason for most squatters to become involved. In the late 70s and into 1980, several harsh evictions caused heavy fighting between squatters and authorities, particularly around the Vondelstraat in Amsterdam. This has been pointed to as a locus for when sections of the squatting movement became radicalised, which would all come to a head on April 30th when the new queen, Beatrix, would celebrate her investiture in Amsterdam, which the law required. The authorities were extremely concerned about the squatters in the city, and the possibility of them interrupting this investiture, so they decided to counter the troublemakers with a huge police presence. The squatters' feelings towards these celebrations and the whole event was cynical anger. One activist said, quote, It is ironic that the best-housed woman in the Netherlands will be crowned in the worst-housed city, end quote. As soon as the investiture started, so too did the riots. Squatters, but also, according to some witnesses, students and football hooligans, moved towards the Dam Square where the investiture was taking place. They were met by the 10,000-strong police and violent clashes ensued, leaving over 600 people injured. One person who was in Amsterdam on April 30th, 1980, was Paul Van Vees, who actually works in the room next door to where we are recording this podcast. So we decided that we would get him to come in here and explain to us what he remembers of the events and of the area that he found himself in on that day. Thirty April in 1980, I was living in Slotervaart in the west of Amsterdam, suburbs, and... It was a sunny day and I was not really doing anything. I was, I just turned 17 and um, I met my neighbor friend and he suggested it actually to go to, to the city. 
Um, I think we just talked about, uh, you know, about possibly being riots there. And he suggested, you know, let's go and, and, and go and see for the excitement, you know. He was into the excitement. And um, I was maybe politically, you know, forming myself and maybe also uh, felt that I was, uh, you know, supportive with uh, with the actions because uh, the 80s in, in Amsterdam, Amsterdam was pretty rowdy, pretty dirty, had a bad reputation. Like the neighborhood I live in now, it's like one of the most popular in Holland, and most expensive, and in the 80s it was actually a pretty bad neighborhood. But I guess it's like how that turns out most of the time in uh, anywhere in the world. So, um, yeah, there was the 80s, it was crisis, no jobs, you know, no future, and um, no place to stay, and there was a lot of houses staying empty, so people were squatting them, and so there was geen woning, geen kroning. It means no uh, house, no crown for the queen. So we went, and um, we went to the dam because the kroning was there. She was going to be the queen new queen so we went there and I don't know how we ended up but we ended up in the Damstraat and um, there was I for the first time in my life I was like seeing military police and I saw people angry people trying to get towards the dam we were very close actually so for the first time I saw like angry people taking out bricks from the street and throwing them at the police. And I was like, you know, 17, I was all like excited. It was very exciting to see all this happening. And I remember um, a sign, the police were standing right under the sign that says, Twijfel niet, God is er. No doubt, God is there. And there was a big, there was a huge sign, and, and they were standing under it, and I saw the bricks flying um, throughwards um, the police, but also the, the, the signs that says, Twijfel niet, God is er. I was looking at that sign, and but the the people were um, more busy with the police. and So we were there, and um, we were, like, giggling, running away, trying to get close to the police, Look what people were doing and, um, yeah, how they organized themselves also. Like, yeah, no, we should go here and take out bricks here. And, oh, stop doing that, you know. Don't throw in the windows, you know, of the shops. Uh, so people were correcting also other people. But, uh, yeah, so we were just running around. And, um, and then uh, I guess I think I even lost my friend <laughs> somewhere. And um, so that was it. That was my memory of uh, of the the crowning of the queen, Queen Beatrix. Yeah. Afterwards, the squatters' movement sought to distance itself from the riots, with many saying that the violence did not represent the aims of the cause, which was to attain sustainable housing for all but the damage to the squatter's reputation had been done. The coronation riots marked a point where public perception of squatters depreciated. 
From that point on, the movement would decline until 2010 when squatting was officially made illegal. The communities that did not take avenues to legalise their tenancies faced destruction. As of this recording, the housing crisis in the Netherlands still very much exists. The final protest movement which we will talk about in this episode took place on the 20th of October 1996 when over 300,000 Belgians, Flemish, Walloons and Brusselers and even some German speakers came together on the streets of Brussels in a giant manifestation known as the Witte Mars, the White March. This was a huge demonstration of mass dissatisfaction with the Belgian state's quality of judiciary, the police force, and the politicians, following the gross mishandling of an investigation into the crimes of Marc Dutroux, a convicted serial killer, pedophile, and rapist. The White March was a rare show of unity in Belgium, signalling the population's anger at the state's inability and seeming unwillingness to protect its most vulnerable citizens. Children. Just as a word of warning at the outset, the crimes which were perpetrated and conveyed in this story are incredibly grim. We have no intention of going into them in detail, since what we are more interested in is the public's reaction to the failures of the investigation, rather than details of the crimes themselves. But just as a heads up, this section will make references to pedophilia and the murder of children. So if that is something which you do not want to hear and now is a good time to press stop. Between June 1995 and August 1996, there were a series of disappearances of young girls aged between 8 and 17 years old across Belgium. On the 13th of August 1996, four days after the last victim had disappeared, police arrested Marc Dutroux, his wife Michelle Martin, and an accomplice Michelle Lelivre. The arrests were made after a member of the public had seen a suspicious white van in the area and had noted its number plate, which linked it to Dutroux. After two days of questioning, Dutroux led police to his house, where they discovered a dungeon in which two of the missing girls were discovered alive, but deeply traumatized. One of them had been held there for over two months. Over the following days, police discovered the bodies of two of the other missing girls buried in the garden of Dutroux's house. And a few weeks later, Dutroux led police to the house of one of his associates, Bernard Weinstein, where the bodies of the remaining two victims, as well as that of Bernard himself, were found. All of the girls had been raped and suffered incredible cruelty. The case was shocking and, quite frankly, horrific. Following Dutroux's arrest, there was an intense media coverage of the case. The parents of the victims were prominently featured on television and in newspapers, heavily criticizing the police for the ineffectual response to their children's initial disappearance. In an interview with the New York Times in February 1997, the father of one of Dutroux's victims, Paul Marshall, recalled how his 17-year-old daughter and her friend had gone missing while on a trip with a group of friends in Ostend. When the rest of the group reported to the police that the two girls had disappeared, the police had simply laughed at them. 
when Marshall himself went to the police the next day, they suggested that she had probably met a nice boy and was enjoying herself somewhere. Marshall and some of the parents of other missing girls began a grassroots community campaign, searching for their children, putting posters up around Belgium, the Netherlands and Germany. They were outspoken and uncompromising, both in their search and in their attempts to make sure the police investigated the disappearances thoroughly. At one point, though, Michelle received a letter from the head of the police in Bruges asking him to stop hindering the police by publicly criticizing the investigation. In the months following the arrest of Dutroux, public anger which had initially been directed at Dutroux himself began to turn onto the police and the justice system after it became apparent that there had, in fact, been major mistakes and oversights made by the police. Dutroux had been released from prison on parole in 1992 after serving around half of a 13-year sentence for the sexual assault of five children. In an AP article six weeks after Dutroux's arrest in 1996, journalist Raf Cassette wrote, quote, Numerous tip-offs pointed to Dutroux, including one from his own mother, but police failed to take action or refused to share information in what many say was a bitter internal war between the different security and police services. End quote. The various disjointed police forces within Belgium had failed to communicate vital information to each other, which could certainly have saved the lives of some of Dutroux's victims. For instance, almost immediately following the first disappearance, one of the police forces had suspected Dutroux, but when he was arrested for stealing a car by another police force, nobody bothered to communicate both pieces of information with each other. When that arrest happened in December 95, in the middle of his crime spree, police searched his house, but they failed to find the dungeon where two of his victims were being held at that moment and who later died. Rumors spread throughout the community that the police or the government were involved in a cover-up or had even been protecting Dutroux. In an article in the International Herald Tribune on September 12, 1996, journalist Barry James wrote, quote, in a poll following a television debate in which journalists questioned the police and magistrates, little more than 1% said they had any confidence in Belgian justice. End quote. The crisis in public confidence had even led the monarch, King Albert II, to get involved, telling the families of the victims that there had been so many errors made in the case that it would lead to, quote, a profound change in our country. End quote. The deepest point was reached on October 14, 1996, when it was announced that the investigating judge in the pre-trial investigations, Jean-Marc Connerot, was being pulled from the case. Connerot was widely seen as a hero across Belgium because he had done a mountain of work that had led to Dutro's arrest in August and also led, therefore, to the rescue of the two girls and the subsequent arrest of 12 other people connected to the crimes. Connor Rott began further investigations into whether or not high-ranking officials in Belgium had been assisting in a cover-up. There had been reports in the Belgian media that Connor Rott was on the verge of also rounding up another pedophile ring. 
he was pretty much the only figure in the justice system that the public had any confidence in. But sensationally, on October 14th, the Cassation Court ruled that Connor Roth could no longer be seen as an impartial investigator into the crimes because he had attended a benefit dinner for one of the victims. At that dinner, he'd spent one hour, he'd eaten a plate of spaghetti, and he'd received a fountain pen as a gift worth about 30 euros. The court deemed that since he had received this pen, he could no longer be impartial, and they dismissed him from the case. Connorot's dismissal from the case was the spark that set off the powder keg of public anger and derision. Almost immediately after the decision was announced, there were protests outside of the courthouse. A petition was circulated demanding that Connorot be reinstated, which gathered hundreds of thousands of signatures. Over the following week, there were numerous strikes and protest actions taken across the country. As the Associated Press reported at the time, quote, Hundreds of striking auto workers marched on the Brussels Justice Palace on Tuesday. Bus drivers blocked off a local court in northern Antwerp. Steel workers struck in eastern Liège. Rail workers stopped all traffic on a busy Brussels intersection. And firefighters and oil workers also went on strike. End quote. As tensions flared across the country, the parents of the victims invited people to join a demonstration that would take place in Brussels on the 20th of October, to honour the memories of their lost children and to demand a proper independent investigation into the entire affair. Due to the heightened emotional state of the population, there were fears that this demonstration could turn ugly and that there would be violence. One of the parents, Gina Russo, called for calm, saying, quote, Our children will be up there watching over us. I put my trust in the people to keep the march peaceful, end quote. On the Sunday, every single bus in the country was used to ferry people into Brussels, and a sea of people wearing white clothes and holding white balloons or white roses flooded onto its streets. The colour white was chosen to symbolise hope. It is estimated that around 300,000 people participated in the march, meaning that roughly 1 in 30 people in Belgium went to Brussels on that day. Over a period of four hours, this mass of humanity were led by the victims' parents, and they walked roughly two kilometres along the boulevards which connect the Brussels North and Brussels South train stations. The fears of violence at the demonstration turned out to be unfounded, as the march took place almost completely without incident. There was no chanting and there were no slogans. The march was almost completely silent, except for applause coming from the crowd as the parents walked by. After the march, one demonstrator said, quote, Now it is up to the politicians to translate this silent protest of the people into concrete actions. End quote. At the end of the march, Prime Minister Jean-Luc Dehaene promised the victim's parents that there would be an inquiry into the investigation and that, quote, it is justice, not politics, that leads this investigation, end quote. In the months that followed the White March, there was a parliamentary commission of inquiry into the entire affair. Almost 300 hours of hearings were broadcast live on television, focusing on figuring out exactly what had gone wrong during the investigation. 
and to then issue recommendations about how to restructure the Belgian justice system. The biggest result of this was the so-called Octopus Agreement on December 7, 1998. It took place between Belgium's eight major political parties, both Flemish and Wallonian, including those in government and those in opposition. The Octopus Agreement saw term limits applied to magistrates. It saw the creation of a federal prosecutor's office to investigate major cases, but most importantly, it ushered in the complete restructuring of the Belgian police force. The old police forces, whose failure to cooperate led to such spectacular tragedy in the Dutroux case, were completely replaced in 2001 by two new entities, a federal police and a local police, which are heavily integrated with each other. There is much debate still to this day about how effective these reforms have been and ensuring that justice actually prevails in the Belgian legal system. Regardless, the White March remains burned into Belgium's collective memory as one of the rare occasions where the people of a country which is so often characterized by its internal differences were united in their demand for change. Throughout this episode, we have taken a look at just a few of the many protests, riots, revolts, and demonstrations that have played an integral role in how the Low Countries have developed. We saw how in Amsterdam, two days of violent riots were triggered by such a seemingly innocuous game of eel-pulling, but which indicated how much pent-up frustration there was in one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the Netherlands. In Lofen, we saw how the centuries-old language divide in this region was exploited by all parts of the political spectrum, and how the protests that followed led to the split of the oldest university in the Low Countries and the further splitting of politics in Belgium. During the coronation riots in Amsterdam in 1980, the squatting culture that had grown and developed over the previous 50 years tipped into violent anarchy, directed at an establishment that had never succeeded to solve the housing crisis that caused the need for squatting in the first place. And finally, the White March showed in a peaceful way a united sense of outrage at the ineptitude of the judicial institutions of Belgium and the power which mass movements can have in actually affecting change. People in the Low Countries have consistently shown that if the authorities or institutions in power do not listen to the desires and needs of the people for long enough, those people will not hesitate to take to the streets and make their voices be heard. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. 